Not in part, but in whole. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, I hope you have one with you. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 1, as we are going to be continuing our series through the book of Ephesians that we're calling Fully Alive. Um, We are convinced here at South um, that God's design for you is not simply to exist, but to really truly live. And that so many of us, in in different ways, in some subtle, some not, um, we, we settle for being alive, but not living. We settle for simply existing when God, I think, is inviting us to more. We, we settle for standing out in the foyer when God's inviting us to a buffet table of goodness. And so in the book of Ephesians, what the Apostle Paul is going to do, is he's going to lay out some unbelievable, amazing, earth-shattering, mind-bending truths that are currently true about you and about me in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, he's going to say, all right, based on that foundation, here's how we can live. Now, I have a confession to make and, and just sort of a realization as I studied our text today. There's not a lot of, quote-unquote, new information in it. Here's what, here's essentially what Paul's going to do in, in verses 15 through 23 of Ephesians chapter one. He's going to pray for you. He's going to pray for his church, the Ephesian church. And, and here's his prayer in a nutshell. Here's his prayer. His prayer isn't a list of things that he wants from God. His prayer isn't. And this church is, is going through turmoil. This church is being persecuted. His, his prayer list could have been so long. But here's his prayer for you. Here's his prayer for me. Here's his prayer for the Ephesian church. Is that somehow, some way, you would be able to grasp and understand and believe what's already true about you. That's his prayer. He doesn't really ask for for anything else. He, He simply asks, verse 18, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. As I as I thought about that passage, as I thought about that statement, that the eyes of our heart might be opened, that they might be enlightened. Uh we had an experience, Kelly and I, that came back to mind. As we were in the process of moving from California back to Colorado, um, I had this um, health savings account that we were going to have to leave, which meant it disappeared um, as we moved back, or we could try to get as healthy as we could before we left. So um, we decided the latter because I'm always in for a good deal. And um, Kelly was, was probably legally blind. I mean, without her contacts on, she could see nothing. So I had a lot of fun with that Um, when we were first married, you know, I'd stand at the door and ask how many fingers I'm holding up and all sorts of stuff that I found out was funny with roommates and not as funny with your wife. Um, (laughs) Steep learning curve there. Uh, First year of marriage. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Some of you are chuckling. You've been there. And so we decided, hey, before we leave, um, we're going to we're going to get Kelly LASIK. And, uh, and so LASIK's not one of those things that you really look for a coupon and shop for the best deal for. 
It's your eyes. They're fairly important. And so um, we found a good doctor that came highly recommended. And here's what they do in LASIK. They, they, they literally, they cut your eye open. They peel it back and they use a little laser. I don't get it all, um, but there's really smart people that do. And so we trust them to cut our eyes open, right? We went down there for one consultation and they said, all right, come back in a few weeks and we'll do the surgery. You're a good candidate. And so we did. And then I drove down um, and Kelly had the surgery and I'm sitting in the waiting room. I barely crack open Sports Illustrated in the waiting room and she comes walking back out. I mean, we're talking like 20 minutes. And I said, well, what did it feel like? She said, it feel like somebody cut my eye open. pretty descriptive but all right so after after two days she goes from being pretty much completely blind to better than 2020 vision man that will change your life no more glasses no more contacts you can go backpacking without getting all anyway it's yeah, that'll change your life and just 20 minutes just like that crazy I'm praying that the next 20 minutes might be spiritual LASIK for you. That that God might do a work in your heart that might open your eyes to see. That even if he doesn't add anything else ever, he's given you already more than you know. And, And that he might allow us to see clearly with the eyes of our heart, that he might allow us to see clearly what it is that he's calling us to as a, as a body, what, he is, what it is that he's calling us to as, as his followers to believe in and to build our lives on. You see, here's the truth about you and about me. We will always act out of what we believe to be true. Always. Every time. There are zero exceptions. And so... If we're going to build our life on truth, if we're going to walk in fullness of joy, if we're going to move from existing to living, what we believe to be true about us, about God, has to change. And here's the other thing that I know that's true about me and probably true about you. We are the kings of deceiving ourselves. That, that we're the king. That, that relationship, it's not. It's not that bad. Our financial situation, it's not. It's not that bad. Our kids, they're doing, they're doing all right. I think sometimes reality can be one of the hardest things to look at. And the same is true for our, our spiritual life, for our relationship with God, that, that we have such a tendency to say, and to think things that, are, that aren't true. And so our lives are riddled with guilt and they're riddled with shame and they're built on regret rather than the great truth of the gospel that's laid out clearly for us. And, and so Paul's not going to pray that you get anything more. He's going to pray that you step into what you already have. Look at the way that he does this with me in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Here's how he starts out. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith 
in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Let's take just a quick time out there. Because here's Paul is in a Roman jail writing this letter to the Ephesian church. He hasn't been to the Ephesian church in about four years. And somehow, some way, he gets word in this little jail cell, probably chained to a Roman guard. He gets word about the Ephesian church. And did you catch the two things that he hears from them, about them? One, these are people. This is a church that's living out their faith. This is a church that goes way beyond Sunday. This is a church that Monday through Saturday is in their community. This is a church who's out there. They are the footprint of Jesus in their community. Somehow, Paul gets word, this church is living out their faith. Amen. And second, they have a love for the saints. That means not only are they living out their faith, not only do people in their community see their faith and know Jesus because of it, but people within the family, people within the church know that they are loved. They see the gospel based on and through the other people in their church. Man, as I thought about what what do I hope people say about South, that's isn't that it? Isn't that it, that that people here would feel like they're at home? That the the widows, that the the downpressed, that the the children, that people here would know that they're cared about, that they are loved. And two, that the world around us, that our community would know that we love Jesus based on the way that we live in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our world. Man, so what would people say about South? I started to think about that. What would people say about South? And then I just started to pray, Lord, I want more and more of this to be who we become. You'll see more as we sort of lay out our vision for who we, we really sense God calling us to be. One of those things is that we would live with a visible faith. We have this conviction that faith isn't something that we internalize and something that we just believe in and of ourselves, but that when it gets in us, it always gets out of us. And so we long, we long to be a place where people see our faith in Jesus and they meet him because of what God does in their lives through it. And so he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Can I just say, quick time out, this is for free. Thanksgiving and prayer are almost always tied together in Scripture. So if your prayer life doesn't involve praise, you're missing out on a huge piece of what God is inviting you to in relationship with Him. I thank God for you. My, over, my, my thanks overflows and I pray for you. And, and here's what he prays. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay. So, so here's what Paul writes. He says, I pray for you. I battle for you in prayer. That you might know him. 
that the Holy Spirit of God would work in you in such a way that He would move you beyond knowing about Him and that He might invite you into a relationship of knowing Him. This is, I'll just be really honest with you. This is a battle for me. I constantly have to remind myself that God is not inviting me to know abstract propositional truth about Him, but that He's inviting me to know Him. And friends, those are two very, very different things. Because you can have all of the information in the world all the information in the world and completely miss what he calls you to. And so here's, here's the first part of his prayer is that he wants you to see clearly that God, that God wants to be known intimately, not just known about cognitively. And can I just say for the record, don't you, don't you love that about him? Don't, don't you just love that about him? That he's not a God who, who hands us an encyclopedia and says, study up. Read it. Get all the, gather all the facts. But he says, hey, my desire for you, my longing for you, is that you might know me. And how easy it is to miss it. I, I, I think of uh, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in the book of John. Where he says this to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. And they search the scriptures, man. They searched them. They knew them. They memorized them to a T. They had it down. But here's what Jesus says. Yet you refuse to me. You refuse to come to me. That you may have life. You see, you can know about him. You can have all the information in the world about him and not know him personally. And, and I think that there's a piece of that that's meant, even in this passage, that's meant to make us say, oh, okay, wait, 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 let's just let's just take a time out. Are we are we playing the religion game? Are we going through the motions of church? Has God become an encyclopedia? Is he a, a bank of facts to be known about? Or is he a person to be known? See, the goal of Scripture is to introduce you to a person, not to teach you abstract truths. He says, you know the whole book. And you miss the entire point. You know what's scary? It is that a few decades later, this is what Jesus writes about the church at Ephesus. I know your works, church at Ephesus. Your toil. You work hard. Your patient endurance. You stick with it. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call them apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Church at Ephesus. You, what you do beautifully, you have amazing theology. You can find somebody who's teaching a false doctrine. You can point them out. And not only that, but you'll kick them out of the church. You are good, church at Ephesus. I know you're enduring patiently. 
and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Church at Ephesus, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of persecution, you stick with it. You're unbelievable. But. That's one of those words. If you're that church that received that letter from this point forward, you're going, amen. Preach it, Jesus. Thank you so much. And then you hear that word, but. And it must have hit them like a ton of bricks. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. See, somehow the pursuit of a person was replaced with the pursuit of information. Knowing a person was replaced with knowing some truths about him. And I think what he would say to us today itself is, I'm so much better than being just known about, I want to be known. I have a few warning signs that I'll just sort of throw out there as we wrap up each one of these four points that, uh, that God wants our vision to be crystal clear on. And the warning sign that our vision is blurring is that Jesus becomes a proposition to, believe, to be believed in rather than a person to be known. And I want to encourage you to just do some soul searching on that sometime this week to say, God, is that who I'm Becoming. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, he writes. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Let's just take a time out. Because first he said, all right, Ephesian church, what I want you to know, what I want you to get, what I'm begging that you see is that he wants to be known, not just known about. The second thing he says is, I want your eyes to be opened. I want you to grasp clearly. I want you to sink your feet firmly into the fact that he has called you to an amazing, unbelievable hope. You see, here's the way I'll, I'll put it, and it's in your outline if you want to follow along. That God wants you to see clearly that you can live confidently and full of hope because he is at work. See, biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but that you know will happen. Biblical hope is not a crossing of the fingers and saying, I I hope that that's going to take place. Please. Biblical hope is the conviction presently of a future reality. See, biblical hope gives you a grounding to walk through whatever life might bring. And you see, here's his proof in it. He spent a lot of time, and we talked about it in the first few weeks of this series, he spent a lot of time laying out the reality that God had a significant hand in your salvation. That he, that he chose, that he predestined, that he stepped in and by his grace reached down and picked us out of the pit that we were in. And now he's going to say, that calling, that calling, when, when he said to you, open up your eyes, see my grace, see my wonder, see my redemption, see my hope, that when he did that, it should evoke in us the conviction that he's not done with us. So, here's his reasoning. 
God reached down and saved. God reached down and through his mercy held out the hope of the gospel to us. If you're sitting here and believing it today, you know that to be true. And so he says, if he's been that good to us, now imagine what the future is going to be like. I love the way that Paul writes it in the book of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 when he says, and I'm sure of this. I mean, if you have your own Bible, circle that. And I'm sure of this. I'm, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's conviction is that you can be sure of the hope that you have because he called you, because you're sitting here today, because he saved you, because he redeemed you, because he forgave you. He didn't call you, redeem you, save you to make your life miserable. He didn't. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says that God has a future and a plan for us. And that's in the midst of a nation who's been in exile for 70 years. Think of what that might have been like to hear that. And you just step back and you go, God, I mean, it doesn't seem like it, God. It doesn't feel like it. I read one time, um, it's an anonymous quote. It says, human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air. But we cannot live four seconds without hope. Cannot live four seconds without hope. See, hope does a lot of things in you, friends. Hope, when your life is full of hope, it means that you are satisfied in Him. And when you're satisfied in Him, you're able to say no to sin and to say no to temptation. See, anytime we give in to sin, anytime we give in to temptation, it should be a signal to us that something's lacking in our heart. That we're not convinced of the gospel in some way. That in some way, Jesus isn't sufficient for us because we continue to go in other places and other directions to be filled up. But Paul wants you to know, the Holy Spirit wants you to know that you've been called to an amazing hope that it might inflate your ability to live for him because you're satisfied in him. See, the reason we settle for so little is because we believe we've been called to so little. And the reason we keep going back to sin is because we have no idea what God has invited us to. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it when he says, we're like children making mud pies in the ghetto when we've been invited to a vacation at the beach. And you see, when hope inflates in you, sin starts to lose its taste. See, the second thing it does in us is it doesn't just help us overcome sin and overcome temptation. 
hope in you. If you, if your eyes are opened and you're able to see clearly, if God does lace, spiritual LASIK on you this morning and you're able to see the hope to which you've been called, then nothing you go through in this life will be able to derail you no matter how painful, no matter how excruciating, no matter how unimaginable it is. See, an inflated hope allows you to navigate the pain and the suffering and the doubt and the hurt of life. I love the way that 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says it. Paul writes this, he says, So we don't lose heart. We, we, we have hope. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here's what he just said. That somehow, in some way, the hardship in life, the pain in life, actually like a like helium going into a balloon, increases our capacity to appreciate the glory and the goodness and the mercy of God all the more. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And isn't it true that it's that pain, it's hurt, it's hardship that often pries our hands off of the seen world and makes us cling to the world that's unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's what he just said. Anything it takes to get you to the point where you will release your grip on the things of this world and cling to things that will last for eternity. Anything it takes to get you to that point is well worth it. And praise be to God. We have a God who's willing to go to any extent to say, I want to get your attention. I need you to know this. I want you to see clearly The hope to which I've called you. It will sustain you. It will hold you. It will keep you. And see, some of the warning signs is that our vision's getting dim and blurry, is that life seems purposeless and tragedy seems final. Tragedy seems like it's just the end. God says, ah, no, 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 no. I want your eyes to be opened to the hope to which you have been called. Continue on. Verse 18. The hope to which you've, you've been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Okay, just quick time out. I'm going to fly through this point, but it is mind-bending. I, I kept thinking, all right, these, the translations have to be wrong. Because the way that that reads is that the eyes of your heart might be opened, that you might know what are the riches of his, his being God, glorious inheritance, God's inheritance, God's possession, God's treasure in the saints. (laughs) What? I'm going, I just read about my inheritance, and then now I'm reading about yours, and and I'm yours. You've got the raw end of the deal, God. (laughs) 
I mean, I mean, if I'm your treasure, if I'm your prize, I know me. That's the birthday present you open up and go, does it have a receipt with it? Yeah, I'm like, can I return that one? Man, here's what Paul wants, wants you, wants the Ephesian church, wants me to see. He wants our eyes to be opened to see that in some way, some shape, somehow, you are destined to be God's prized possession. I mean, I don't know how else to say it to you. And, and in some ways, it seems like, man, the God of the universe, I'm his possession. I'm his, I'm his treasure. It's all throughout the Old Testament that the nation of Israel was God's inheritance, that they were God's people, that he was calling them his own, that he was making in them a treasure, that he was making them great because of his mercy and his grace held out to them. Look at the way the Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 20 says it. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. Man, knowing that you're valued by God, knowing that you're treasured by him, there may be no other gift that I can give you that would be better than that. Just to, just to open your eyes to it. I had this friend that I played baseball with all growing up and into high school, and his dad was at every single game. I mean, in some ways, he was a really supportive dad. He was, he was always there. But his dad was hard on him. I mean, like every time he... Every time he swung a miss, you'd hear some chirping from the crowd. And when he struck out, you better believe his dad was up along the fence teaching him, coaching him, and sort of chewing him out a little bit. And here's what I noticed about my friend. He was an amazing baseball player. And he played horrible whenever his dad was there. Because he felt like there was so much pressure to perform. There was this idea, God, that, that, that dad was going to be happy if, fill in the blank, two for four with a double, then dad's happy. But when his dad wasn't there, there was this freedom to run. There was this freedom to play. There was this freedom to just be alive. And I think so many of us have this view of God where he's just waiting for us to strike out and then to say, told you so. When are you going to get, get it together? Come on. Come on, Paulson. We've been at this 18 years. When are you going to finally nail it? Here this morning, you're God's possession. You're his prize. You're his inheritance. You're valued by him. Today, Today, not tomorrow when you get it all together, because that tomorrow will never come. Today. And you see, when you believe it, you start moving from existing to really living. From technically being alive to drinking deeply of the life that he wants to give you. He's not looking over your shoulder. 
I love the way that Tim Keller writes it. He says, so the gospel humbles us into dust, yet at the very same time exalts us to the heavens. We're sinners, but completely loved and accepted in Jesus at the same time. He saw your heart at the bottom and he loved you to the stars. The warning signs that our vision might be getting blurry is that we're convinced that we have to prove ourselves to God. See, he's convinced that Jesus proved himself on the cross. And if you're in him, you are a treasured, prized possession of the king. This is how it ends. So he says, I want you to know, I want your eyes to be opened. I want some spiritual LASIK to happen for this church that they might know the hope to which they've been called, that they are his inheritance in the saints. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Time out. Here's what he just said. He wants your eyes to be opened to see clearly that there's energy, that there's strength available to us, to those who believe. And then the rest of the verse, the rest of the passage is going to be describing that strength, that power that's at work in you. He says, he goes so far as to say, that same power that's at work in you is the exact same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. And what's even what's greater than even just the truth of that is that Paul doesn't say, I pray that they might receive power. No. He says, I pray that their eyes might be opened to the fact that they already have it. He's not, he's not waiting for it to come. He's saying, I'm waiting for people to believe that it's already here. That's that's what he's saying. I was reading about uh, this week. I read about a guy named William Randolph Hearst. He invested a ton of money in collecting art, a ton of money. And he read about in a magazine, he read about this one piece of art and his heart was just sort of captured by it. And he he wanted it so badly. And he paid one of the people he worked for to go. And to fly over, overseas, over to Europe, and to look for this one piece of art. And this guy was there for about three months looking for this piece of art. And he writes back to him and he says, After months of searching, I've discovered where the painting is. It is already stored away in your own warehouse. And he was completely unaware of the treasure that was already his. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many Christians are living life, waiting, hoping, and praying for things that they already possess, that they already own, that are already theirs. God's saying, 
the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Here's the deal. Here's what that means. There's no situation that's too far gone. There's no marriage that's so far on the rocks that God cannot heal, that God cannot redeem, that God can't bring it back. There's, there is no, there's no situation financially that God cannot work in to redeem, to bring about hope, to bring about life. There's no kid that's too far gone to where God can't bring them back. He's saying that there is power for us who believe that he can raise the dead, he will raise the dead, and he does raise the dead. He just wants you to be able to step into it with conviction that he works, that he moves. He goes on to say that, that he seated them in the right, him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all ruler and power and dominion, and above every other name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. You see, he says that Jesus has power over evil. He has power over sin. Not only cosmically, but that same power lives in you. Lives in you. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Isn't that great? See, Jesus is your senior pastor. You know why that's awesome? Because he's way, a way better senior pastor than me, number one. Number two, he's at every meeting. (laughs) Every gathering you have, he's there. And that he's directing and he's leading and he's guiding and he has a plan. And the elders that you prayed for, our goal and our desire is not to come up with something, but to follow someone. It's to follow someone. It's to follow him. He's the head. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, there is great power for us, for those who believe. The book of Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 is going to say that you have everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need. Now, my my prayer is that the Holy Spirit might just be laser pointing areas of your heart where you're going. I'm I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he can accomplish that. I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I can have that conversation that needs to be had. And my prayer is that God would do something in you this morning that I know I can't. That I know I can't. A few years ago, Many years ago, there was this phenomenon called magic eye. I don't know if you remember those. There were these like there were these pictures that looked just chaotic, and but as you stared at them longer and longer and sort of crossed your eyes a little bit, there would be this like three D image that popped up from them. And so you're looking at chaos, and like all of a sudden it's a dolphin jumping into the ocean. You're like, whoa, amazing. And I've been praying this morning that. In some way, that's what God would do in in your heart and in your soul and in your life. In a world that seems chaotic, in a world that seems abstract at times, in a world that seems painful and distant, that he might somehow bring meaning out of it. 
that you might know, that you might know that the God of the universe is saying, I want to know you. I want to know you. That you might know the hope to which you've been called. That you might see it clearly and it might shape the way that you live. That you might know today that you have great value to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to the one who calls every star out by name, who speaks it all into existence and who holds it all together by the very breath of his word. You have value to him. Some of you are chasing something you already have. And that you might know that there is great power because the same spirit The same God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you, friend. And I pray that this world might just start to pop out a little bit to you. That you might see reality that's there. And that the God of the universe might tune your heart to see it all the more clearly. That we might know truth. That we might believe it and that we might walk in it as his people. Amen? Amen. Let's take some time. I want to I pray for you. Uh, would you close your eyes and, and bow your heads?